0: Thank you for joining us for Brown Blasts, Women's Voices Amplified, a virtual programming initiative of the Women's Leadership Council that showcases incredible women from all corners of the Brunonia ecosystem sharing their insights on the questions of work, life, and living in today's world. Today, we are delighted to welcome Professor Wendy Schiller to Brown Blasts. She's the professor of political science, professor of international and public affairs, and chair of political science at Brown University. She did her undergraduate work in political science at the University of Chicago, served on the staffs of Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Governor Mario Cuomo, and then earned her PhD from the University of Rochester. After fellowships at the Brookings Institution and Princeton University she came to Brown in 1994 where she teaches popular courses titled The American Presidency, Introduction to the American Political Process, and Congress and Public Policy. She has written and co-authored several books and she has been a contributor to local and national news. Today we are delighted to have her join us to talk about women running for and serving in elected office. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: I worked for Senator Moynihan, and I fell in love the US Senate. So when I went to graduate school for my PhD, I decided I would focus on the US Senate and talk about how senators introduced bills and what legislation they sponsored and why. And then that burgeoned into an article, and then that burgeoned into a different kind of book on how senators from the same state represent their states together in all sorts of ways, and how they compete and cooperate. And then it just spiraled from there with books on Congress and books on American politics and another book on the history of how senators were elected in state legislatures before the 17th Amendment in 1913. So I've always worked on Congress. I haven't worked on women as much, but now I'm working on a project on gender equality and federalism and how state laws can render women unequal to each other across state lines when they're not equally implemented. So that's where I've evolved now in my research.
0: So I want to circle back to what you said when you were first interning in the Senate and then working your way up. How many women were around you? I mean, certainly not a lot as members, but as staffers.
1: No, it's an interesting thing. So I was first uh, an intern in the district office of my congressman um, when I was a sophomore in college in the summer. And I worked a job. And then I worked as an intern on the days I didn't work as a job. And there there was a woman who ran the office. So that was a long time ago in the 1980s. And then when I was an w- intern in the same office in Washington, the same congressman, um, there were several women interns. And I worked for a woman legislative director, uh, legislative assistant. So there was women staffers in the office. And I saw some women in the House of Representatives in those days, but not very many, uh, I have to say. And then when I got my job right in um, basically right after college, there were two women in the United States Senate. There were two Republican women in the United States Senate, Paula Hawkins of Florida and Nancy landon Castlebaum of Kansas. And that was it. And there wasn't a bathroom uh, off the Senate floor for women. There was uh, You couldn't wear pants on the Senate floor if you were a woman. You had to wear a dress or a skirt. Men had to wear a jacket and tie. And it is still the case that you have to wear a jacket and tie, but now they've expanded and women can wear pantsuits on the floor of the Senate. But you couldn't, if you, as a staffer or a senator, you couldn't get on the floor if you were not dressed in a dress or a skirt. So things have really improved. I believe, if my numbers are right, we'll have 23 Women senators in the Senate uh, next session. We have Marsha Blackburn as a new addition as a woman. And we have Jackie Rosen from Nevada. Marsha Blackburn's a Republican. Jackie Rosen's a Democrat from Nevada. And either way, Arizona will send a woman to the Senate, either McSally or Cinema. And we've lost two women, Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heitkamp. So in that sense, there's a net gain, uh, possibly of one, possibly of two. And I never thought there'd be nearly a quarter of the Senate would be women. I, if you had asked me 30 years ago, I never would have thought that. The House is at least 99 women, which is an increase of 14 or 15. It might bust 100. I have to check my numbers today. So that's a huge deal. There's no; Those numbers were much, much lower. And so it's been incremental. But what's really cool about it is that the women, it's not just New York and California that are sending women to Congress. It's all over the country. Kansas elected its first, not its first, but it's a woman governor, a Democrat, to defeat Chris Kobach, and Kansas elected um, a woman, a Native American woman who identifies as gay to go to Congress. Wisconsin re-elected Tammy Baldwin, uh, who went to the Senate, who identifies as gay. I think she also just had a baby. And um, we have Tammy Duckworth from Illinois. You have people from all over the country. And it's really a phenomenal thing to have governors, women governors. Oregon re-elected a woman governor, among other things. Alabama sent a, a female senator who had been a replacement, a temporary replacement for Jeff Sessions a long time ago and now has um, is, is been reelected. So you're seeing women make gains all over the place. Even in state legislatures, 24% of women are, 24% of state legislatures are women. But now we're going to see that number rise. A lot of more women were elected to the state legislature. So you're really seeing, but you are seeing a partisan split. Apparently of all the new women going to the House of Representatives, only one is Republican. The rest are all Democrats. So women have really made a statement. That's not true of the Senate, obviously. But women have really made a statement in 2018. I think women got out the door. I think they voted. Um, if there is a female interest, I think they voted that way. And that's going to make a big difference moving forward, not just in capturing the House, but in the general resistance to the tone that the president has taken on women.
0: So there are about seven things that I want to unpack there. And I so appreciate you contextualizing that, Professor Schiller. I love how you, you know, made it clear it's happening at multiple levels. Is it the state, federal, and municipal level? Um, so some of it is in reaction to Trump. But what else? Like, are there other drivers that compelled so many women to throw their hat in the ring?
1: I mean, I think it was Hillary Clinton's loss, I think, really devastated a lot of women who really wanted to see the first woman president. They wanted to see Hillary Clinton be elected. Uh, and I think they decided for all sorts of reasons that the only way to uh, change the expectations of voters over time about women is more women running. Uh, I think that was a general impetus. I think there was the money to support women candidates you know, for a very long time. Emily's List has been the big mover of money to women candidates, but that has shifted. And now Democratic or progressive PACs Wealthy donors because of Citizens United are now funding women in big numbers. So the, the source of funding for women has expanded greatly and it puts them on par with men. That's a new phenomenon that hasn't always been the case. So I think that was really important, having the resources, having the money, having the support, having social media and the Internet really for fundraising has changed the game for women who have no prior experience. So the woman, Lucy, I think Lucy McGrath, who defeated Karen Handel, in the 6th District in Georgia, that was a John Ossoff race last year that was very expensive. Karen Handel was Republican. She defeated her because her son had been shot to death in Florida and she wanted to be an activist and she wanted to run. And so she managed to run and raise the money and win that race. So there are a number of different stories like that. People who were just said they'd had enough and they wanted to run without a lot of prior experience. In other cases, Diana Presley who was in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, she defeated a guy named Michael Capuano in the primary. But she had been on the Boston City Council for a decade. She was a fairly experienced politician. She knew how to raise some money. She knew how to get raised national money. And she took advantage of demographic changes in Cambridge. She thought it was her time, and she had a shot. And then she defeated him, and then she won pretty easily in the general election. So there are lots of different reasons and different types of women who have run this year. But it all amounted to greater victories um, for women going to the house. For women so
0: say it's their first you know first time running so they don't have Ayanna Presley's experience are there like what are some classic obstacles that you think women face and I think I'm thinking about this both on an internal level like self doubt or not even you know absence of role modeling and an external level like increased scrutiny for women like what do you think are some of the biggest things that prohibit women from even throwing their hat in the ring to begin with?
1: Well, our former colleague, who's now at the University of Virginia, actually Jennifer Lawless, who was at Brown for a long time, she's written a number of articles and books on this. And she basically says it starts really early, as early as high school, junior high school, that women internalize a little bit more self-doubt about their capabilities in all realms. And this carries over to politics. But what's great about the next generation, the younger generation, is that I'm seeing less and less of that self-doubt and more and more confidence. And I think that has spurred women in their 30s and 40s, to get out the door and run. It used to be that you had to have your family, raise your children, and then you would be viewed as acceptable to run. So Nancy Pelosi got started 30 years ago, but she's 78. So she was in her 50s. Diane Feinstein got started in her 50s. So these prominent women, they had to wait. But that's not true anymore. You don't have to wait. You can have children while you're a senator, as Tammy Deckworth and I believe Tammy Baldwin have had. So I think that's what's fantastic is that the, the limit of time and the limit of what you did before is no longer really an obstacle to getting to Congress for women. And there's more money available, partially because of social media and partially the internet, but partially Citizens United. And that has bemoaned to put a lot of rich money, rich people's money in the game, but it has helped women as well.
0: Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, because I feel like oftentimes, certainly in, uh, in some circles, Citizens United is seen as all bad news. Um, and it's true, I hadn't made the connection yet, but in terms of opening up resources for women that prior were not available. So getting back to what Jennifer Lawless talks about, about women internalizing some of that stuff earlier, and even though there is a real shift happening. Like if you had a young daughter, say maybe she was 10, 11, and she expressed interest, say, in student government, but also was thinking about like, yeah, I want to be the next president of the United States. Is there anything in particular you would do to support her to sort of limit that internalization of self-doubt and expand that enthusiasm that she has for wanting to be a leader in the public sector. Uh,
1: The the very simplest thing that I would do, and I probably have done this, I probably did this in class with uh, any number of students and I still do it, is that women tend to preface questions or statements with self-doubt explanations. So they'll say, well, this may not be a good question, or this may be a stupid question, or I might not be on the right track. And they do it all the time, and they learn to do it early. And it's to guard yourself against criticism. You want, you're want sort of gearing up for being criticized, and you're sort of saying, okay, I'm recognizing there could be flaws here. Men rarely do this. They don't do it in academia, and they don't do it in politics. And the women that you've seen win this time around, and win in general, project confidence throughout. And they, they don't back down, and they're not necessarily overly aggressive, which is a, sort of a term that men use, or, or the media uses about women. Um, which is not true because they're just uh, acting like men would act. But don't set the table with doubt the minute you open your mouth. You know, let it go. And if somebody wants to attack what you say or criticize what you say, then you gear up to defend yourself. But don't set the table with doubt before you even get started in making your claim, making your argument. And I would start that as early as a 10-year-old by saying, just say what you think and say what you believe. And if somebody challenges you, then you'll worry about it. And so I'm continuously still working with students across the board. Men do it sometimes too, but mostly women to say, don't do that. The second thing is, and I think a lot of women are guilty of this and I'm guilty of it too, is that women tend to end their sentences still with higher intonations as if it's a question, not a statement. Mm -hmm. And I still see that. And when I see it, I gently, not in public, take them aside and say, if you speak in a declarative tone without ending on a high note, uh, people will um, are less likely to imbue doubt into what you're saying or uncertainty because just by doing that, that inflection itself represents the idea that you're asking for permission to say what you think rather than just saying what you think. So those are the two things I would work on with a child, a young daughter.
0: It's so interesting you say that, Professor Schiller, because I remember once when I was interning, actually, the uh, U.S. Department of Treasury um, in D.C., A mentor took me aside and he said, as a woman, try not to preface what you say by, I feel, say, I think. That's always stayed with me. It's one of those, it just sort of, I never thought about it. Just say, well, I feel, I feel that we should do this. I feel that we should do that. He said, just say, I think. I think, that is, I think. and
1: I, I will tell you that it's a, it's a, it's a story I'm willing to share. I was at a conference in 1996. I was a brand new, basically brand new uh, assistant professor. I was at a conference um, that was had all these big wigs: Susan Estridge and a guy named David Broder, who's a famous journalist, and Ralph Reed and Carl Rove, who later become became domestic counselor, advisor to uh, President George W. Bush, and he was working with Bush in Texas at the time in the governor's office. And I asked him, I told him I had a question that I was going to ask later in a seminar. And he said, that's a great question. And then I got up and I asked the question. I did, in fact, say, this might be a dumb question, but. And then I asked my question, which was a good question, by the way, and he took me aside afterwards and he said, I am so angry with you. And I said, why? He said, you are an Ivy League assistant professor with a PhD. Don't get up and ask a question starting with this may be a dumb question. He said, never do that again. And then he said, "Besides, I already told you it was a great question, so you should have believed me." But I thought, and I thought, you know, for all you have, you know, assumptions about Carl Rowe being a fairly conservative Republican, he was a big, strong advocate uh, at that time of women, and he he said, "You just can't preface things that way." And exactly what you say, I usually say to people, say, "I believe in writing. I believe um, it appears that rather than I think, or I, you know, I think is fine, or I feel." You're absolutely right. And women shouldn't have to do this self-regulation of language, but in fact, we do still.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, so I want to get back to, to students because I'm curious if this trend of more women running for office and getting elected, if you see that on the university level, like are more women taking Um, Your classes um, or has there always been? Well, I guess first maybe the better question would be what is the gender dynamic in your class? Traditionally and have you seen a shift since let's say 2016 in the number of women that are enrolling?
1: No, I actually have always had a fair number of equal, you know men and women so throughout my teaching the American presidency intro to American politics Congress my seminars Um, I see women and men. So I don't usually have a huge gender difference in my classes. Uh, Women are pretty active. They'll speak up. They're not shy. Uh, We have an honor seminar this year, and we have plenty of women writing honors theses. So I don't see a lot of profound difference. I do think that in general, Brown students, right before 2018, I asked last, uh, last spring in my presidency class, and I was like 125 kids. And I said, what are you doing this summer? Who's doing political stuff? And very few people raised their hand. They weren't doing internships. They weren't doing campaigns. They were doing uh, startups, uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, community groups. And I said, why are you doing all that? And they said, we feel we can be more effective on the local level in, in really on the ground, you know, really working with people that we want to help, whether it's the homeless, or trying to teach people how to read, or criminal justice reform, rather than going to Washington. And that could be because Brown tends to be liberal and the Republicans control the Congress but, and Trump is president, but still, I thought it was a big sea change, a big shift in how young people view the efficacy of government. And I sense that young people feel there are lots of ways to make a difference in life, and that it may not be the best path to go into public service. So that's a, and that was both men and women. One other thing I have seen, that women are more professionalized, I would say, in their thinking at Brown as undergrads than they used to be. In other words, women are really, they come in as fresh people, and they say, this is my goal. I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And I have to build a whole portfolio and career to get where I want to go. More women say that to me now than they used to. Um, and the number of men who say that are pretty much stayed the same. So that's another interesting phenomenon of changing times. I do think running for office is one thing, but also they've seen women in prominent um, positions in business, in media. I think they realize that they can be a boss. And I think that has changed a little bit. Uh, in the last couple of years at Brown.
0: I remember once reading, maybe it was the professor of Princeton, um, and this was a little while ago, so I don't think the current professor, was very concerned about the absence of female leadership on the undergraduate level. So uh, student government, yes. um, lit mag, newspaper. It's a, it's
1: a big study, right? He did a big study. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and then and then, so much of it came down to modeling and that for women, there was an absence of modeling, but also if somebody didn't suggest that you throw your hat in the ring, like if if you didn't say, Katie, why don't you think about going out for student government? It might not even occur to me because the person who, all the people that I've known in student government don't look like me. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if in some ways this professionalization is there just like you said, there are just more models of women leaders and women bosses, both in the you know, public sector, but also in the corporate space and in the nonprofit space. There just and, it feels like there are just more women out there.
1: Exactly, and head of Brown, president of Brown. I mean we've had two women in a row, President of Brown, and Lou Simmons was very successful. I think President Paxson's very successful. And I think that makes a big difference. Uh, I think having Maude Mandel as Dean of the College, having a woman Dean of the College was really good. But it's interesting that you say that because one of my former grad students, Caitlin Sidorski, she now is a professor at Coastal Carolina and South Carolina. She's just finished a book that will be published on exactly this at the state level, why women do appointed office rather than elected office. And it's because they're contacted and recruited more frequently to serve on boards and commissions than to run for office and that they're not as re- heavily recruited as men. And Jennifer Lawless finds the same thing. Now that's partly because men have been in professions that have been typically thought to be good jumping points for Congress or state legislature, like business and like law. And so the more women that are in those professions, I think the more they'll be recruited. But I do think that, that is a huge, recruitment is a huge deal. It's a huge deal for equalizing the playing field. And that's what happened this year too. Multiple women ran for the same congressional seat in primaries against each other. And I think the ability to recruit women to run, especially given the success in twenty eighteen, will only get easier at the state, legislative level, and uh, the congressional level.
0: Well, and so can we unpack that recruiting? Because I think, you know, for somebody, you know, I, I worked in Congress for six years, but that was on the poli- policy side, not the politics side. So what happens in terms of campaigns is really unfamiliar to me. Like, who is tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, hey, you should think about going out for school board or city council or state legislature? What is that pro- that sort of nomination or recruitment process like?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, I don't know for sure in terms of the interaction of the DNC, Democratic National Committee and Republican um, National Committee, and the congressional committees. But the job of the leader of the Congressional Campaign Committee in the House uh, for the Republicans and Democrats is to recruit good candidates. And when you have Nancy Pelosi, a woman who's the minority leader, she's going to go out and say, how many people do we have? What are they looking like? Can they be funded? Can we fund them? And she trips around the entire country. There was just a, an AP story about her. She just went around the country and tried to get as many women who are going to be good candidates to run. So I think it comes from the party organizations in the Congress trying to win more seats trying to recruit women, but it also comes from Emily's List, which also helps raise money for women. It comes from local activist groups, women in the community that think, oh, I could get behind you. I'm willing to work with you. And having more women elected to the Senate and the governorships, particularly the Senate, helps a lot. So it, it wasn't necessarily the case in Massachusetts, but in other states, when a woman was running pretty steadily, like Debbie Stabenow was running for Senate in Michigan. Well, and I think it's Karen Whitford who was running for governor. You know they're they're trying to get women on the ticket, and they the Democrats really had the idea of matching candidate to district this year, not doing a national uh, platform, just matching the best candidates. So they figured, given women's Me Too movement and outrage on Trump, that they would probably do better in some of these districts, particularly suburban districts, if they nominated women. So I think it was a concerted event by party activists and party elites in Washington and at the local level that got uh, recruited more women help them raise money, help them with their campaign. As I said, social media helps tremendously. You don't need quite as much money to get started. And once you get started, then you attract more outside money. So I think that's been a big boon to women vis-a-vis men running for office.
0: So I want to talk about um, both challenges and opportunities that women running for office have, but also that women in elected office have. So if you start with women running for office, and I think you sort of hit on some of this before, but if you look at both the challenges that they face that maybe their male peers don't but also I'd love if you think that there are some, any opportunities they face that maybe their male peers don't, sort of separate from um, you know, the, the opening up of new resources that you mentioned before.
1: I think every uh, woman who goes to the United States Senate or the United States Congress or state legislatures or governors. We have a governor, Gina Raimondo, who ran in Rhode Island as a treasurer and ran against two men in the Democratic primary and defeated them, and then ran against two men in the general and defeated them. And then this year she was running and she had to campaign incredibly hard. She raised a lot of money, uh, 7 to $8 million, which is a lot for Rhode Island. And she's been campaigning since June, really working hard. And she still faced the obstacle as an incumbent governor of resistance to a woman governor and then resistance from women to her as a woman governor. And what she did over those couple of months was really start to persuade people, men and women, that she was doing right by the state and that she was gonna be good at the helm. And she won by 10 percentage points more than she did the first time she ran. She broke 50%, which was a big deal. And she really showed that a woman could run the state. And I think she hasn't gotten everybody on her side, but she really managed to get a lot of people on her side. So that is both a challenge and an opportunity for her. And I think that women just being heard the same dynamic that has a woman in a room full of men, and the men either don't listen to the woman or don't let her speak, or when she does speak, they then repeat what she says and then claim credit for it, as if she never said it. Those things, those things are true on the Hill as well. Those true are in state legislatures. And we've had some incidents in Rhode Island state legislature of, sort of harassment and misogyny. And I think it's the same challenge. How do I be heard? How do I get my colleagues, especially my male colleagues, to take me seriously? And how do I jump into the debates? And different senators taking different tracks. So Amy Klobuchar kind of busted out in the Kavanaugh hearings, not by being aggressive with Kavanaugh, but just by per- being persistent in a quiet, unassuming way, and then having him be not nice to her. And that kind of generated momentum for her, whereas Kamala Harris is a prosecutor, a former attorney general, and she goes after people. So they have different styles. But as you know, Charles Grassley tried to shut Kamala Harris down a couple of times and say, you've said your piece. So women face this environment every day in all walks of life in every way that they aren't heard and they aren't given space to speak. And I think those challenges are met with just speaking, just continuing to speak and make your point and point out when someone is repeating what you've just said.
0: Which I feel like is just as true in on Capitol Hill as it would be in the boardroom or just any meeting where somebody repeats what a woman said, uses slightly different language, and claims credit, so right.
1: exactly, exactly so
0: other than speaking, which is a huge one and certainly not to be overlooked, for women who are in elected office, you know Nancy Pelosi, Amy Klobuchar, and there are plenty of women who 've been over in the House for a while. Do you see commonalities across what has enabled them to sustain in what continues to be a majority male environment? And and one that certainly in some spaces is not altogether welcoming to women.
1: I think there are different stories there, but I think women more so than men, well, maybe about the same, have to pick a couple of issues and focus on them and just establish a record that they can do something, that they can attract media attention, that they can get a hearing, that they can get a bill or an amendment passed. They have to, in the first couple of years of their time in Washington or in the state legislature, they have to establish effectiveness. And they have to play by the men's rules for that. Once they do that and they're deemed to be a colleague who will work hard and can pass bills and stuff, then I think it gets easier for them to branch out of that. But I think that's the key thing. So if you look at Klobuchar, she worried about Minnesota, about agriculture in particular, about trade. And Warren made consumer protection her big issue. Kamala Harris has made judicial issues and race and discrimination her issue. I think women, more so than men, have to pick the issues that are constituency friendly and not too women and I think that's where women, the successful women have hung on. Nancy Pelosi, I think, has been successful. She was, her father was the mayor of Baltimore. She was raised in a political household. And I think she has woven her way through the ranks by understanding that raising money for the party was about the biggest thing you could do. She's raised, by all accounts, between $70 and $100 million for the Democratic Party over the, over the years. And I think she's recognized that if you can get people to open up their checkbooks, men will listen to you.
0: It seems like it's still a pretty narrow bandwidth within which women can operate in the political space. You can't choose issues that are too woman-y, right? You have to speak up, but you also have to be likable because if your male colleagues don't invite you to certain meetings or certain caucuses, then you're not going to get access to the information that you need. It feels like it's widening, the space within which women can operate in uh, the public sector. Do you see that continuing to widen or... Um, or do you think we've sort of like made some great headway and we're kind of stuck w- where we are right now in 2018 for a while?
1: I think the door can shut at any time. I think there's plenty of things you see all around the country. You see restrictive abortion measures passing in Alabama and West Virginia. You see uh, restrictions on already passed in North Dakota, for example, for a right to choose. I think that you'll see... Um, uh, it's it's an interesting trend. You see more conservative policies, particularly on choice and abortion, which is partly belief and partly strategy on the Republican side to get people out the door to vote uh, for them who care about abortion the most. But you will see attempts to push back on women, I think, quite a bit in some of the states that are the reddest in the country and that certainly the president's behavior and rhetoric is not supportive, and I don't think it it will change overnight at all. So I think there's always a danger that these things will unravel, and that there'll be increasing hostility. But on the other hand, my, my work on domestic violence, which is the area that I'm looking at uh, state law differences for women, you're seeing more women adopt protections against domestic violence, expanding gun retrieval or removal uh, for people who are under restraining orders, things that you might not think about. But more states are adopting these policies to protect women. So on the one hand, There's always a a possibility, particularly with the Supreme Court that's going to get more conservative, that right to choose will get rolled back to the states, which would be considered a pretty big defeat for those women who support right to choose. But on the other hand, in other dimensions, things like minimum wage which is really important to single working mothers and working mothers in general, uh, child care initiatives, universal pre-K, which helps women get out of the house sooner to work because their kid is in school all day, at a younger age, and domestic violence protections, things in those domains are getting better for more women. So it's a a double-edged, it's sort of a two-sided coin here for the advancement of women. You had
0: mentioned um, Me Too before, and I feel like there's, uh, there we go, not I feel, I believe, um, in fact, I have read that there's a line of reasoning from some men um, that they don't want to be in the same room as women, right? They're just concerned about what could happen, sort of Mike Pence's, you know, kind of approach that seems to be playing out in a lot of different spaces. And if I think about that, you know, in my time in Capitol Hill, it was very important was your access. And if you don't have access to certain spaces, you don't have to have access to the information that is shared in those spaces. Have you seen that play out in a way that has negatively and substantially impacted female candidates or elected officials?
1: Well, not yet, but I think that that is just another way of excluding women from the conversation. I think the idea that you would exclude women from, you know, being, having dinner with the governor of Indiana, Mike Pence the governor in of Indiana, or lunch, you know, you have your own relationship with your spouse, so you figure your trust issues, but nonetheless, that's a way of saying that because you're a woman and I'm a man and I might be attracted to you or I might say the wrong thing to you, you have to be pushed out of the room. My answer was no, you control yourself and figure out how not to say the wrong thing to me or not to act imp- appropriately to me, but don't exclude women from conversation and power because you can't control yourself. I thought it was such a backward approach and a backward statement. And I have real concerns that there are a lot of people, uh, men and women in some ways, that really want sort of predictability and stability of a world where men were dominant and women were subordinate. They're more comfortable with that. And I think it's gonna take a continuous push just as in movements of color uh, against discrimination. Um, You just have to continually push every single day to make it a world where that doesn't happen. So there was something you said that
0: I just wanted to circle back to, which was, you know, if, um, if we elect someone who is a woman, um, to office that we expect her to represent women. And right. yet there's a tension there with that. And also women in elected office, not being, doing quote unquote, women-y issues, um, you know, whatever we choose to call those and whatever box we're going to, we're going to, you know, label that, um, So, how do I mean? It's like almost that kind of impossible um, circle to square of okay, so you know, maybe there was a strong female vote for this one particular female candidate. She gets into elected office. There's the hope and expectation that she's going to work for universal pre K or on domestic violence or gun safety. Maybe you know, places for women to pump in the workplace, issues that might be seen as traditionally women y. But by the same token, there's a lot of resistance for female elected members of Congress to do too many women-y issues. So how is a woman supposed to kind of like square those two things that kind of clash? That's a great
1: question. I think we're moving into an era now because a lot of the legislative studies that we have out there now that study voting... Uh, and This is true in some ways also of um, representatives of color, except for the issue of immigration with l- the um, Latino uh, members of, of, of the Congress, of the state legislature. We're moving into an area where polarization in terms of partisan lines is so stark that you don't have an opportunity to vote against your party, but for women, if you are the Democrats. And if you're Republican, what Republican women have focused on is economic opportunity and um, domestic safety for women. So they basically can do that within the bounds of the Republican Party. Can you say, I'm a woman business owner, I want lower taxes, and I want to be able to pay people a decent wage, but I don't want to be overburdened with regulation if I'm owning a hair salon, a traditional woman's business, for example. So um, that is changing. And for Republican women, they stick to those issues, health care availability. That's why, in some ways, I think Susan um, Collins and Lisa Murkowski voted not to repeal Obamacare. You know, it is single women in particular get hit the hardest in so many domains. And there are plenty of Republican women who vote Republican who are in that, in that category. And they care about social issues, but they also care about opportunities. So Republican women are doing that. And then Democratic women are doing things like sexual harassment and uh, abortion access and contraception access. But they're also doing healthcare, education, uh, op- economic opportunity. And I think because so many women work, I mean, so many women in the workforce now, Anything that improves working conditions, wages, healthcare availability helps all women and men because they're two income families. So, uh, whether it's two women who are together or it's two men together, but, or a man and a woman, it doesn't matter. It's helping the, the family. So, it becomes a family issue, not a woman's issue. And you've seen that over time. So, now I think we've gotten to a point where just having more women in the room is the symbolic benefit. Is that? especially given the president's rhetoric on women. It's no longer we need the substantive issues dealt with for women, because I think men and women are sharing most of these issues in terms of concern. It's about having women identify as leaders by example, being powerful. And that does that trickle down to better treatment of women in the workplace or in schools or on the playground or wherever else you are in terms of male-female relations. So it's kind of gone full circle from the 1970s when women are trying to get a foot in the door uh, to basically saying it's the fact that you're a woman and you're capable and you're uh, playing on a man's field that is empowering more women symbolically rather than necessarily being a big difference in terms of policy outcomes.
0: I have one final question, Professor Schiller, that I have long wanted to know, which is with the work that you do, there's a lot of, heartening news and then there's a lot of really hard news and stuff that's dispiriting um and can feel like have we consolidated any gains have we lost all our ground so when that happens when it just feels like there is a surplus of crummy news like what do you do to refill yourself and just kind of bring yourself back to being hopeful about what the future can hold
1: i always try it's hard but i have been on the planet long enough now that I have I have the blessing of experiencing other periods of time in our nation's history where things have looked pretty dark and um, the rhetoric has been disempowering and maybe the politicians who've gotten elected haven't been my favorite choices and um, bad terrible things happen you know uh, mass shootings 9/11 um, sad tragic incidents I mean you, you sort of get older and you think okay these things do happen and they're horrible and what can we do about them and so I, I kind of process it in a contextual way. And I, and I also think two things I think that I can leave you with. One is that when I was um, right out of college, my uh, good friend, my best friend happened to be gay. And he could not walk around town with his partner. He, they, were, they couldn't. Right. Um, People on the Hill who worked on the Hill, you know, they would go to a certain part of Washington. It was DuPont Circle then. And they would go out in the evening then. But they couldn't really be seen in any other way. And that was just one example. I also worked on AIDS quite a bit when I was in on the Hill and people were dying because of fear of homophobia, pure and simple homophobia. And men were dying because of that. And I think, you know, African-Americans voted, but not in the same numbers. There weren't nearly as many African-American members of Congress or state legislatures. There, There are so many ways. Women were not fully integrated into the workforce. So many ways in which people were not able to express or live to their fullest in this democracy. And I'm not saying it's perfect now, but it's considerably and deeply better for almost everybody than it was then. I know you can go forward over time, even if there are setbacks, and I know that because I've lived long enough to see it. So that is what I think every day. When I think about the bad stuff, I think I know enough to know that it was much worse and that it could always get better because that's what I've learned. And the second thing is, I think about local on the ground community. If you get frustrated with Washington and you get frustrated with government and politics, think about the things you can do in your daily life that make your community better. So just say good morning to more people when you're walking down the street instead of just listening to your headphones. I mean, be nicer to people. In the supermarket, for example, don't honk on the highway. These seem trite, but they're not trite. They're ways of bringing positive energy into the community that are not political. And I think if we thought a little bit more about that and we engaged in behavior that was more positive, that is one other way, I think, that gets you out of this sort of political seesaw. I'll call it a political seesaw. Well, I love it.
0: Viva perspective and small kindnesses. So Professor Schiller, thank you so much for joining us for Brown Blast. This has been an incredible honor and I am deeply grateful for your time and your good work in the world.
1: Well, I appreciate uh, having a chance to talk to you again and I'm going to call you Caitlin because that's what I used to call you uh, in Congress class. Um, And I hope we can talk again.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Professor Schiller.
1: Thank you.